you know, it's lovely. It's so bright, airy, and the view that you have. So, um, so I shouldn't really hang on to that envy stuff, especially about with the passage I'm going to be uh, preaching on this morning. So, what we're going to be doing this morning is continuing our study of Mark's gospel. And today we're going to work our way through Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. And that subheaded, causing to stumble. And when I was given the, uh, the preaching rota and um, found out that I had this passage to read on, I opened up the Bible and, um, well, all the text was in red. So I thought, wow, this is all Jesus' words. This, this must be good. Then I read through the passage and I thought, wow, this is all Jesus' words. And it's hard-hitting stuff. It's all about sin. Now, when we read through this, you'll, you'll hear for yourselves, these are strong words from Jesus. And it's about sin. It's from the mouth of Jesus. And it's a call for us to deal with sin in our lives. Basically, to cut it out. So I'll just say that again. This is Jesus' words. It's hard-hitting stuff. It's all about sin. And it's to cut it out. It's also about how we impact others and how we should not cause them to sin and to fall away from their faith. So it's heavy stuff. So are you ready? Right, let's read together. In fact, we need. do we do the Bible monitor? Can, um... So it's on page 1013. Of your Bibles, of the Bible. Right, the words are going to come up on the screen anyway, so um, so I'll just read it. So it's Mark chapter nine, verses forty-two to fifty, and it's subheaded, causing to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go in into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So, yeah, I think it's hard-hitting stuff. And I think with these type of passages, there's a tendency for us to read it in the third party. So, you know, think about it. It's, It's about others, what they've done. But actually, it's directed at each and every one of us. So I I just want us to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and hear what he wants us individually to to deal with as we look at this passage in more detail. 
So before we do get into the passage, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to look at this passage and the impact of sin on our lives, open our ears so we can hear your truths. Open our minds to understand your truths and open our hearts to accepting your truths. Father, we pray that this morning your spirit will convict us of our sin. So we seek your forgiveness and transformation and leave church this morning changed people. Amen. So before I embark, I know I'm not stalling, let's have a meander into one of my favorite TV programs. And it's Silent Witness. I love watching Silent Witness. And uh, if you've not seen it, it's a drama series about a team of forensic pathologists. And it's their investigations into crime, helping police solve murders, using clues found on the bodies of victims and at the crime scene. I I have to say, I never used to like uh, Silent Witness because I'm squeamish. I hate the sight of blood. But over a period of years, I've grown to love the program. And I think being an engineer, I really love the forensic science aspects of that program, how they gather the evidence, how they use DNA as part of their investigative work. And um, I know when I was, I also, that, that made me think of, uh, there's a guy called Edmund Locard. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a quite a famous forensic science um, and he's got a famous principle saying that every contact leaves a trace now he was basically talking about um, a crime scene you know and so that's trace material which could either taken from a left or at a crime scene so it could be contact between two surfaces such as your shoes walking on the floor covering or it could be fibers if you've been sat on a, on a on an upholstered chair. When I get home at work, I normally have something, normally sneak in, I have, have something to eat, and it's usually toast. Brenda doesn't normally need to ask, because I usually leave plenty of evidence. Crumbs around the toaster and a knife in the sink. But these kind of traces are easily cleared away, and there's no lasting damage, apart from my increasing waistline. But Thinking about it, the same principle can apply to us. Every contact we have with another person leaves a trace. And I want you to start thinking about what kind of trace are you leaving on others? Do you build people up or do you drag them down? Do you give or do you take? Are you a positive influence or a negative influence? Are you the type of person people engage with? Or do they avoid you? So you're probably thinking, What's, what am I going on about? What's the point of this? But let's just go back to the passage. And when it says in verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, that's those who believe in me, to stumble. Basically what he's saying is, if there's anything that we do or you do to cause another one to lose their faith in Jesus, anything you do to discourage the faith of a fellow believer, even to cause him to sin or fall away from following Christ. He's saying, if that's you, if that's me, 
you're in big, big trouble. It would be better if you act, it would actually be better if you died a horrible death before you cause them to sin or fall away from Jesus. It would be better if a large millstone was hung round your neck and you were thrown into sea to drown. This is what he's saying. So it's harsh, harsh words indeed and a huge warning to us. But he's actually, you know, he's, he's, well, he's speaking in the context of not causing others to stumble. It's, so it's not about us fighting for our personal holiness, but it's about fighting for the holiness of others within the body of Christ. So reading this passage, it immediately made me think about what kind of influence am I having on others and other believers? And who and what is influencing me? I think Jesus wants us to show a radical love for others. But in order to do that, we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and examine the trace we're having on others. Stephen Covey is the author of a well-known business book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he came up with three categories of influence. Sorry. First, the first one was the model by example. In, a, in other words, it's how people see you. Who you are, how you act has a significant influence on others. People watch you. We can be an influence by what we do and say and also by what we don't do and don't say. Secondly, he said, build caring and authentic relationships. So this is about understanding how others feel and it's about investing time in them. Do we care and understand others or are we too focused on our own needs? Do we invest time in others for their benefit or is it for ours? And the third aspect he, went, he said, talks about is we, meant, we need to mentor by instruction. So this is not just about what we say, it's also about how we say it. Are we encouraging? Are we encouraging in what we say? And is it done out of love? So I think we have a responsibility for drawing people closer to God, not dragging people down and pushing them away from God. You know, we can introduce temptation into people's lives by the things we do, the places we go, the things we watch, the things we tolerate in our lives. As I said earlier, we are watched by others. What are they seeing? What are they hearing? Are we living a life of godly example? Now, we can directly tempt people into sin, and this is seen throughout the Bible. And there's two, two examples, Adam and Eve, in the there's one in the Garden of Eden, being tempted by the fruit of the tree, and the consequences of which we're living with today. And then there's King David, being tempted by Bathsheba, and how he ended up committing adultery. Now, we can lead people into sin by example, through our own sinful behaviour such as drunkenness, bad language, or even simply by failing to encourage godliness in the person. 
So my question is, have you thought about the impact you, you're having or can have on others? Are you discouraging or encouraging other Christians or those young in faith? You know, what are you saying? Would you be happy to come up here and share what you're saying to others and with the whole church? You've probably seen in the news in the past couple of weeks about the moor fires um, not far from Manchester. There was Saddleworth and there's the Winter Hill moor fire. Lots of people, I think it was over 30 houses, had to be evacuated. And, it, you know, devastating fires were out of control. And I think Man the Manchester police services believe these didn't start by chance. They were actually started deliberately. And I just want us to think about James. There's a passage in James that talks about the tongue, three, chapter 3, 5 to 6. And it says, in the same way, the tongue is a small part of the, of the body, but it boasts of great things. Consider how small a spark sets a great forest on fire. The tongue also is a fire, a world of wickedness among the parts of the body. It pollutes the whole person, sets the course of his life on fire, and it itself set on fire by hell. By hell. So we can see how a small spark can get out of control. Things that we see can be like that wildfire spreading out quickly, having a massive negative impact. You know, our tongue and our words should be used to encourage, build up, not to discourage and tear down. And if you've been hurt by someone within this church or any church, we'd love to pray for you at the end of the service. But I would encourage you to seek reconciliation, resolution, rather than allow it to continue to fester. Maybe you know within your heart that you've not treated someone particularly well or you've said something you need forgiveness for from the person concerned from Jesus. What I say to you is do that. Do it today. Don't wait. Brenda's mum, Mary, was part of a church in Aberdeen from her late 20s to her early 40s. And unfortunately, the church, it was rather a cliquish church. And it had quite a high value placed on <coughs> status and wealth, of which she had neither. So she actually, she, had, she left that church very hurt and disillusioned, not just with the people, but with God. She lost her faith through the actions and attitudes of others. You know, we have to be so careful we don't do the same. We need to nurture and care for others, disciple them and encourage them in their walk with Jesus. Picking them up when they stumble and not be the cause of them stumbling or turning away from Jesus. We need to continually encourage others to deepen their relationship with Jesus, to follow his teaching. And we need to be radical in our love. And that's everyone, regardless of status and wealth. You know, we need to be the fragrance of Jesus in every conversation, every interaction. We need to think about what would Jesus say? 
let's not cause anyone to stumble or end up on the wrong path as the outlook for us, if we do, is not good. I love outdoors, especially the country. A friend and I, we used to holiday in France every year. And um, I don't know if you know, but across France is a series of walks called the Grand Rondoni. Probably not pronounced the right way, but yeah. So what I did was I bought a book, found a route close to where we were staying. So off we went, book in hand, but no map. Me being full of confidence, so we set off. Brenda was pregnant at the time with Scott. So I'd chosen, the route I'd chosen was about two hours long and um, started off well and um, everything was all marked, lots of markings, the path was open. But about an hour and a half into the walk, um, there, there were no route markers. <laughs> and um, we were, so we were in the middle of the, basically we were lost in the middle of this wood, which in one way was good because it provided shade weather like this, but the other way, on the other hand, I couldn't, um, I couldn't see any landmarks. So we kind of retraced our steps and went off again in completely the wrong direction. Nearly four hours later, we found ourselves in a small hamlet and then from there we got, was able to navigate back to the starting point. So you can imagine how the, the uh, conversations at that time. But um, that's, a, that's for another day. But the point is, I, I had no intention of us getting lost. Or getting us lost, should I say. But little by little, we actually ended up off, way off course and even further from our destination. And I think sin is like that. It gradually entangles us, takes us away from Jesus and how he wants us to live our lives. So the next so that's the first part of the passage. So the next passage gets even better. And this is about ways in which we can be led into an entangled in sin. And this calls for radical discipleship. So I think at the start of my talk I said it was hard hitting. So I just want you to think, even though we might not like what we're hearing, and it makes us uncomfortable, we need to be open and accepting that these are the words of Jesus and he's speaking truth. Now I think there's a tendency for some people to neglect what's in Scripture, and they almost try to customize Jesus or customize Christ. I think too often we, we read scriptures that make us feel good, and then we, we omit those scriptures about that we know about Jesus that makes us feel bad. You know, I think for many people, they want a religion that's easy. You know, in the world that we live in, we are offered instant salvation taught about a Christ that accepts everyone just the way they are. So I think what this is saying is, well, it's not about our needs, nor what makes us feel good. Yes, we can say, Jesus loves me, and I love him, and all is good. But Jesus, he does accept us as we are, but he doesn't expect us to stay as we are. He calls us to be more, to become more like him. You know, grace doesn't exempt us from pursuing holiness, 
when we experience grace, there's a desire to walk with him, to become more like him, and to live for him. But we have to be on our guard. As it says in Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door. And then in John 10, 10, Jesus says, the enemy comes to steal and destroy. So we need to be on our guard, and often we unwittingly end up down the wrong path and lose sight of Jesus. So this part of the passage is very graphic in nature and is very clear. It's a very clear warning for us. And I want to speak about the areas in our lives that Jesus wants to set straight. So these are Jesus' words, and although they sound harsh, he desires so the best for us. Jesus refers to the hand, the foot, and the eye, and these are the three problem areas for us when it comes to dealing with sin. The hand refers to the things we do, the foot, the places we go, the situations we get ourselves into, and the eye refers to the things we see, we desire to have. And I think these three words describe all the areas where we are tempted to sin. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And then I mentioned earlier about uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 6. It says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate it. So what Jesus is saying is that if the hand and the eye, sorry, the hand, the foot or the eye causes us to sin, we'll have to take drastic action. We have to cut out that body part so that we will not give in to its desires. It will not take us down a slippery slope. Now, Jesus is, he is exaggerating here. But it's to emphasize the horrible nature of sin. He's not commanding us to remove parts of our bodies. So fear not, I have not come this morning armed with eye-gouging or limb-cutting equipment. But this may be a painful passage to listen to, and it may need some tough correction, corrective action. Some people have taken this passage quite literally, and... And in the early days of the church, there was one example that Oregon of Alexandria, he had a problem with sexual lust, so much so that he emasculated himself to get rid of that temptation. But I don't think that's that's not what Jesus is uh, asking us to do. But what he is saying is if sin comes into our lives, we need to act, we need to deal with it immediately harshly, ruthlessly, consistently, and decisively. We can't give it a foothold as it will quickly ensnare us. You know, if a relationship that you're in is leading you into temptation and sin, you need to sever that relationship. You know, if there's some activity that's leading you into temptation and sin, you need to cut that out of your life immediately. It might mean removing yourself when people are talking maliciously or gossiping. 
It might mean you need to start watching certain programs on TV or the internet that we know crosses God's line. You know, exposure to such things can leave images in your head that never fully go away. In Hebrews 12.1 it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let's throw off everything that hinders us, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked for us. Now, I know the stuff in my life that's preventing me from running my race for Jesus and for and living out the purpose he has for me. I know I need to take action. You know, one or two of you know that I love running. Michael loves cycling. You know, I the thing I love the freedom that it brings, getting outside, enjoying the fresh air. You know, for running if for me, running does two things. It's just get good to get out of the office, get some fresh air, but exercise is a stress reliever. But it also gives me some God time in the middle of the day, something I desperately need to help me get through the day. But if I was, when I go running, if I was to put on a rucksack on my back full of rocks and put a chain around my ankles, I certainly wouldn't get a personal best it would be a pretty big hindrance, but I would probably stumble and collapse. So the question is, what are the things that cause you to stumble? Social media, reality TV, unfortunately, is becoming the biggest influence in society and our lives. Love Island is currently the most watched TV program. And... You know, what kind of influence is that having? What's it normalizing? What is it saying is acceptable behavior? Is this a new norm? I wonder if Jesus would be a participant. You know, how many of us are watching it? Or should I, maybe I should rephrase it and say, who would admit to watching it? You know, do our youngsters see this? And do they see this as how relationships work and think it's acceptable? What about social media? This just sets unrealistic expectations. It's quite often fake, incorrect. There's always the very best photos, the best stories. You know, there's adverts with the new must-haves, the newest car, then there's phone calls offering us just about anything on finance, money with money that we don't have. You know, our, our eyes see, then want, or lust after things. Just like Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we all know how that ended. I think as well, we have a tendency to surround ourselves with like-minded people who tell us what we want to hear. And maybe not what we need to hear. So who are we mixing with and whose company are your feet taking you to? Do you binge watch box TV sets? I've got a funny feeling I'm not going to get invited back here with uh, this talk, but uh, binge watch box sets. You know, it's so easy to waste a whole evening or a whole weekend. 
And what is it, what's it doing? It's just distracting our attention away from God, from time with God. And then there's pornography, sexual sin. It's so easily accessed and leads to more. I think the, the, the enemy directs us to the temporary and away from the eternal. It's, you know, we all have one of these things. When I personally don't find these life-giving, I find them life-sapping. They all have, you know, they have an unhealthy hold on us. And um, about a year, well, it was a, couple, a year and a half ago in, in, uh, in our home group, we did a study, and it was about fasting off of social media. So we actually tried that. So I think that's something I would recommend you did, a try. Why not fast yourself off of Facebook, for example? I did it because I found Facebook was aggravating me because just because you go into it and it's all full of people, lovely people having a lovely time and it just didn't reflect real life. But I've managed to stay off Facebook for a year and a half now as a result of that fasting. So why don't you try it? Just fast yourself off something like Facebook or some other social media. You know, I could spend all day going through, you know, areas in the nature of sin that entangles you. But you only need to ask Jesus to bring to mind the things that you need sorting out in your life. And he will do it. One of the, the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin in order that we seek forgiveness and transformation. Two weeks ago, Brenda and I were in Edinburgh and uh, we were, we were uh, catching a train to Glasgow. We were late, in a hurry, rushing along Princess Street. It was full of lots of people having a good time just wandering about. Too slow for me, but we were weaving in and out of the pedestrians. And Brenda tripped fell over, hurt her right foot. She was in agony. So we ended up going to A&E, and it turned out she had fractured her fifth metatarsal in two places. So she was then given a moon boot to wear for six weeks. If you don't know what a moon boot is, you can have a, have a look at the end of the service. But this was basically part of a rehabilitation, and it's just to allow her foot to heal and restore it to its original state. You know, you look at it, it looks incredibly restrictive to wear, but it's actually the thing Brenda needs to restore her fruit for the purpose that it was intended. Some people think being a Christian is restrictive, but Jesus gives us the parameters to live our lives, a life that is abundant and full, a life worthy of his calling. So it's vital that we maintain a deep relationship with Jesus and allow ourselves to be influenced by him, allow him to guide us and direct us. So what areas in your lives do you need to place a moon boot on? You know, Jesus came to give us life and life in its fullness. But with it comes guidelines to enable us, to enable that to happen. The Bible gives us clear parameters to live out our lives, not to restrict us, but to give us life to its fullness, the very best to offer. There's a call in our life, or, or, there's a call to live a life of radical discipleship. 
Let's start cutting out all that hinders and entangles us from sin and look to Jesus. But to do this may need radical sacrifice. In Jewish society, the right eye, the right foot and the right hand represented a person's best and most precious faculties. So the right eye spoke of one's best vision. The right foot spoke of one's one's best walk, and the right hand spoke of one's best skills. So Jesus is simply saying that we must be willing to give up the most precious, the most valuable things we have in order to avoid sin. Jesus warns his disciples, and ultimately us, that nothing is so valuable that is worth going to hell over. And it says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You know, the amazing thing is God's grace and ultimately Jesus' radical sacrifice for us. And in 1 John Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also the sins of the world. You know, I spoke earlier about my love for running. And what impact that would be if I ran with a heavy rucksack or chains around my ankles. Well, Jesus has the wire cutters to cut the chains from our ankles and will remove the rocks from our rucksacks when running a race. But we need to be open and receptive to this. I would be very surprised if there was no one here this morning who did not need Jesus to work in some area of the life. In Romans 3.23 it says, we all fall short. So wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whether we've just strayed off the path or lost in the woods, we have Jesus and remember his radical sacrifice for us. He can free us from sin, but we just need to go to him to repent and seek forgiveness. And finally, just the the final paragraph, radical witness. We're called to be a radical witness. Salt is good. Jesus uses salt to illustrate qualities that should be found in his people. We should make a difference to the flavor of the world we live in, just as salt changes meat flavor. We are in a way to make the world palatable to God. We should counteract the moral decay in society. When we lose that desire to salt the earth with the love and message of God, we become useless. Jesus calls us to be in the world, not of the world. To be a radical witness for him, we need to live a life worthy of his calling and purpose and in thanks for his radical sacrifice on the cross. 
It's when we depart from the spirit-led life of genuine radical discipleship that the distinction between ourselves and the rest of the world becomes blurred and our testimony is hindered. So we need to remain salty to be a radical witness for Jesus. Let's stand.